So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Derek Black and Matthew Stevenson. There is a shorter, produced version of this conversation at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. There's my clock. Good afternoon. Um, I I have one announcement that because of time constraints, and we are recording this for a potential broadcast on On Being, um, we are not going to be able to take questions from the audience. Um, but the three of us will be around after the conversation and very open and interested in continuing to be in a dialogue with you. I want to just say also what an honor it is to be to to for this invitation to come in and to be here with you today, and to be here uh, with Matthew Stevenson and Derek Black. And can you all hear me? Is that okay? All right. We're working with no. We're working with. This doesn't matter though, does it? Okay. Yeah, we actually. This is technology. We have two microphones, but this one is for the radio. Um, so I am just going to try to. We will just try to project. Um, you have lengthy bios in your, in your program, so I won't uh, repeat all of that. I will just say briefly that Matthew Stevenson is currently uh, pursuing an MBA at Columbia Business School, and Derek Black is currently pursuing graduate work in medieval history at the University of Chicago. They met at New College in, in Sarasota, Florida, Yes, Sarasota, Florida. Is it right that that's the Honors College of That's Florida? correct, yes. Okay. Um, Derek grew up, in some ways, the, the future face of one of the largest white nationalist communities in the world. Um, his father had been a grand wizard of the KKK. David Duke was his godfather. And I want to read just a couple of lines about how Derek... Um, begins a, a definition of white nationalism um, as he, as he uh, internalized it growing up, that white nationalism supports the premise that multiculturalism is a failure and that politicians tra- trapped in a multicultural status quo are oppressing white people in their own country. They typically blame the West's movement towards inclusion on a conspiracy of Jewish power to promote multiculturalism at the expense of whites. 
Which makes it all the more remarkable that one day in 2010, after his white nationalist background and activities had been exposed by an upperclassman at New College, he was just in his second semester there and actually was away from campus when this happened, Matthew Stevenson uh, invited him to Shabbat dinner and kept inviting him for the next two years. And so I think as much as anything else, what we're here to do today is experience the friendship between these two young men and draw out the wisdom and practical lessons their friendship might hold for how human beings and societies can find their way beyond what makes hatred and Holocaust possible. Matthew, I think, were you the only Orthodox Jew on campus or one of few? As far as I'm aware, I was the only one, yes. Okay. And so here's, you know, I could imagine many people in that situation with what had just been revealed about um, what Derek was part of, the, the, a very understandable human impulse would have been to feel like perhaps, the, you know, one of the most vulnerable people on campus. What I want to ask you is, um, if you could think to what in the Orthodox Jewish teaching and sensibility of, that you had grown up in, what in that made it seem obvious to you to extend the invitation to Shabbat dinner? Sure. So uh, growing up as a student in the Kabbalah Center, one of the things that was emphasized probably more than anything else was treating other people with human dignity, regardless of who they were or what they believed or what their background was. And that was just as true for Derek as it was for anybody else. And I saw that when the news broke about his, his background, he had not been publicly voicing those views to other students at the school. So it was a big surprise. You two knew each other, right? Were you in the same dormitory? We, he lived downstairs from me, and I would sing along when he played country and western songs on his uh, guitar. <laughs> Poorly, I might add. Um, but uh, never, nevertheless... Yeah. Um, when the news broke, people, many people, not everyone, but many people, I saw treating Derek very poorly. I mean, trying to make his life as miserable as possible and what I think was maybe a misguided attempt to change the situation. And at that time, you know, I had been hosting these Shabbat dinners in my dorm room every Friday night along with my close friend Moshe Ash, and we spoke about it and decided that there was an opportunity. We knew that Derek had grown up in a white nationalist family amongst white nationalist royalty, so to speak, and probably didn't know any people from the backgrounds that his ideology despised. And so we maybe had a, the unique opportunity, maybe the only time in Derek's life that he would be in a position to actually see, to get to know on a personal level, those kind of people. So for that reason, I decided, along with Moshe, to invite Derek to come. Mm -hmm. Um, Derek, was there a religious background in your childhood? I haven't read anything about that. Was that? No. Um, both of my parents were raised by Protestant Christians, uh, and both of them became atheists when they were teenagers and in college. So I was raised by atheists with um, a strong enough conviction that I was sent to Sunday school when I was a kid. And I remember asking my dad a few years later, you know, what was the incentive for that? Because I had enjoyed it a lot and I got awards for memorizing Bible verses. And he said it was because I wanted you to be familiar with 
religion so that later on you couldn't say I had kept it from you okay. and you would understand that atheism made the most sense. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, I guess, I, I don't know how to ask this question. I wonder, um, was there something in that formation of your childhood or, or perhaps something in you that rebelled against that formation? Um, perhaps that you weren't yourself even so that you wouldn't have recognized that led you to say yes to this invitation to have Shabbat dinner? I don't know. I, I think it's significant that during those couple of years when I kept coming back to Matthew's Shabbat dinners, we always avoided talking about the elephant in the room, you know, my activism. But what we did talk about was religious studies, not, not just you know, personal conviction, but just the idea of religions around the world. I think that was probably the main point we talked about. Really? Because we were both very curious about it. And I don't know what it means. I definitely was not uh, leaning towards be, becoming a theist. I still am not. I, I study divinity in graduate school as a curiosity. It's something I find interesting for humanity. And I don't know exactly what it means, actually, that it's one of the main things we talked about for years when we were sort of trying to avoid talking about harder stuff. So we talked about religion. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's, that's always a softball lot. topic. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, you had actually ventured into local conservative politics successfully before you went off to college. You were just starting that out. Um, Seems like when you, when you I, I can't tell that when you decided to go to a liberal, liberal arts college, um, both liberal and liberal arts, that, that, they, that they stood in your way? Is that, I mean, you were? I don't think so. I, I, I was really convinced that uh, my family's ideology that I was uh, trying to become a major activist for was so fundamentally, profoundly correct that I wasn't going to be convinced it was wrong because right. it had too much evidence to support it. Um, and going to New College made a lot of sense because it was the honors college in the state of Florida and it had the low Florida in-state tu in tuition and it had a good medieval studies program and I had absolutely no worries about having my mind changed I, because they were wrong, you know. Right, and I mean that is so. It, and it seems like you had a good experience, and but it would there was nothing also in that first semester or, or the second semester. I mean, there was no earthquake for you that you landed there and started to change. Um, and you, in fact, you were still doing the radio show every day. Yeah, um, it started a radio show before going to before you go, went going there. to college, and yeah, for a while I kept it up. I kept my dad took it over, but I would try to call in and be a co-host and. Looking back, the infrequency of how often I would call in was a retrospective on my mind changing, but at the time it didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. Try to call in less and less, and then looking back, I say, well, I think I was trying to avoid it. At the time, I thought I was busy. It, you know, it does strike me that, you know, what you, it, that was storefront, your father started um, storefront, stormfront. Um, which has been called the first major internet hate site. And I wonder, but you know, there are a few things that strike me about it. One is that it was kind of like you said you weren't religious, but it's kind of, that was kind of like your family mission, right? And it was very, and it was very much a community um, around that. Would you have described it as a hate site when you were growing up? 
And oh, no. 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 And in the same way that the community would never use the word racist, um, they would say absolutely not racist because that, that means bad person and we're not bad people. Uh, we don't hate and we don't dislike. We're just interested in, uh, in you know, preserving our own. And like, that, that sort of language would never happen within the movement itself. Mm-hmm. Would you even say that that's a way you thought about what was going on to yourself or within the community? In what way? Would you think of hate as being what it was about? No. No, no. It was um, purely in the sense that there is an opposition in mainstream society to this clearly biologically true and correct and socially correct ideology. And so they come up with insults like the word racist and hate. And the, the job of an activist is to sidestep and point out the hypocrisy of them using this word hate. And it's not something that people attribute to themselves or think that others are correct to use it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I'm even curious about whether if you if you think about it from the outside now I mean did did you feel hate right was, mm. was that in your body was that even no I mean it's difficult to answer in the sense that our motivation was much more focused on each other, other people within the movement itself and going to events and seeing each other and reinforcing that you believe this and I believe this and it's us against the world and if, this is, if we don't advocate this, no one else will. And almost all the mental space was devoted to that, trying to talk to other people who believe in the white nationalist ideology and reaffirm that we're in this together and very little mental space was actually spent on anybody else and even worrying if what we're advocating has a negative impact on anyone else because we were so convinced that it was right for us and for the world and, and there was no possibility that that wasn't true. So what would have looked like hate mongering to someone else for you was it, inside the community, it was almost a byproduct of that focus on the us? I think so. Um, I actually have experience of one of the people who I met at Matthew Shabbat dinners at one point actually agreed to come to a seminar that I had organized. She was um, uh, completely opposed to white nationalism, thought the idea was horrendous, but we had actually been having these quiet conversations and she wanted to see if the way that I explained it to her in private looked the same as when I was trying to explain it to fellow people. And after that debriefing and saying, you know, what, what did you think? Uh, it was one of the first instances where I could look at it and say that calling this hate actually kind of makes sense because afterwards she said, why are you why are all these people here so focused on denying the Holocaust? Why are these people so focused on a Jewish conspiracy in America? Like, what does that have to do with loving your own? That's, that's, that's hate. And I didn't have a good answer. I said, I'm not really sure why they're so focused on denying the Holocaust ever happened. It clearly happened. And why is that so intrinsic to the ideology? And like that led to some conversations where I started seeing things from a different perspective that I hadn't 
when I was growing up in it, when I was just talking to people for whom that was totally normal. So what I think, you know, when I read about the two of you, your friendship and this story, I feel like, you know, it, it's, it's this linear thing that you grew up the way you did. You went to college and were exposed. Matthew invited you to Shabbat. And then you write this, and then you, you, you disavow um, your background and, and write this rather famous, you know, article for the Southern Poverty Law Center. What I feel gets skipped over are these two to three years when, for a time, you were still doing that radio show, I think, and you were still going to Shabbat dinner on Friday night. And that this friendship and this human connection, um, that, it, that, it, that there was this time involved. There's something also really impressive to me you know, when I look at, when, when, so you were away, an upperclassman was doing a research project, f discovered your activities online and sort of posted that for the community to see. Look, look who's in our midst. And, you know, this is, flies very much in the face of what we hear about college campuses now, where all you can imagine, and I think we also only hear very extreme versions of what happens, but, you know, it sounds like there was a real dialogue that went on. And of course, there were people who were alarmed. But I mean, Matthew, you, you described that. There were also people saying, um, you know, there were people writing and saying out loud online right away, whereas, it, you know, I don't know how, um, it's not going to do any, it's not going to affect anything if we just ostracize Derek. So there was this discernment, um, which feels very sophisticated to me. And you, um, yeah, so would you talk about that, about that dynamic, and does that strike the two of you now as you look back? Because I think this is really important intelligence for the rest of us to figure out how does something like this happen on a college campus and turn out this way, but also there was that investment of time and relationship that you made. So I'll start. It, it's, I think, spot on the money that it's, easy to gloss over the fact that between the time Derek was first invited to one of these Shabbat dinners and the time that really I had any real awareness that his views on white nationalism had changed was about two years apart. That's two years of every week coming over, spending hours, receiving frankly a lot of criticism by other people on the campus. Not everybody, but certain people on the campus for, for what I was doing. Um, including friends who had been coming to these dinners previously and, and stopped coming because they, mm -hmm. they didn't want to be around Derek. Did, did some people start coming again, or did the, did the, yes, did the makeup of those dinners change? To some extent, the makeup of the dinners changed, mm -hmm. but I think that over time there were certainly people, I can think of specific examples, where people who had initially been so vehemently opposed eventually, let's say, slowly warmed to the idea. Um, I, I think that one thing is you mentioned before the fact that it might have been easy for me to feel threatened or, or victimized. In, the, the, I, in some ways, I felt like I had a unique opportunity because of my relatively visible identity to be able to extend a hand in a way that students a Catholic student might not have been able to do in the same way. Because mm. it might look in some sense that he was supporting 
Interesting. The ideology that was being proposed. Uh, I think most people were reasonable, even the people, my critics, did not think that I was a white nationalist. Um, um, so, uh, and people on campuses today have different backgrounds, and not everyone has the same opportunity set, but I think the fact that someone is, let's say, the one that's ostensibly victimized by the ideology may give them a unique perspective, a unique ability to actually reach out and... To, to be that bridge person. Yes. And obviously, with the qualification that you, you were not physically threatened by Derek, right? Like, Derek was not a violent person, and so... No, you no, could, Derek has never beaten me up. No. no. <laughs> but, I mean, for what, whatever he was about that, that could, could be reprehensible, you know, and so that, that would be a, a boundary. But, but in this case, I think it's, it's counterintuitive, but very interesting, again, intelligence, social intelligence, that a person who looks like, you know, who actually had an identity that, that was most opposed could also be that step into that dis- uncomfortable place. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And you, know, you mentioned this before, you didn't, um, you, those dinners were not, you didn't talk about white nationalism. Like they didn't, they, you, the conversation was not about what you did this week. Um, you talked about superficial easy things like religion. <laughs> and in, in fact, we, I, I remember the first time that Derek was invited over, I was very explicit with, very explicit with people this was not ambush Derek time. This was not some opportunity to, to yell at him for the wrongness of his beliefs because I knew that he would, first of all, he'd spent his whole life defending this ideology. I hadn't spent my whole life attacking the statistics and other things that they built their ideological convictions on. And as a consequence, I knew that shouting at him, or at least I felt that shouting at him at something like that or having anybody else at the table do so would just, immediately put him on defensive, and he'd never come back. Mm-hmm. So I was very explicit that people were not to discuss his background at the table, or the white nationalism more generally. Mm-hmm. It's so, but you know, you say it in such a matter-of-fact way, but it's a real piece of emotional intelligence. I mean, I feel like right now in our country, um, we kind of forget that if we really want people to change, like that it has never happened in human history that somebody changed because someone else told them how stupid they were. Um, I don't know, did you, were you, um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, you must have wondered also when you first went, are they going to grill me about this or will I be put on the spot? Or? I think I was less worried about being grilled than what actually happened where I wasn't grilled and had to spend um, ultimately years of really enjoyable time among people who the fact that I was friends with them was contradictory to my worldview. And that was a lot more uncomfortable than had I been grilled because I had a background doing media interviews since I was 12 years old, where people say, you know, how do you believe in hate? And I had crime statistics and IQ statistics and uh, history of American white supremacist statements from the founding fathers and other things like that that tend to confuse people when a 14-year-old explains to them why all the races should be separated. And I was pretty comfortable with that position. Like, I thought it was important and I knew how to do it. And if it had been a big argument, I would have had statistics 
Um, I would have misused social science and I would have not changed their mind and not changed my own mind, mm -hmm. but I would have at least known what was going on. I think the real thing that happened where I was just at a Shabbat dinner for two years and I had to say, well, I think my ideology is very anti-Semitic. Maybe I, <laughs> I like this dinner though. Like that, that's, that's a conflict. Yeah. I, I, um, I was thinking as I was preparing to interview the two of you about other conversations I've had and, you know, or just like, uh, I was speaking with somebody earlier this year about Hannah Arendt, who of course had to leave Germany, uh, a Jew, and covered the trial of Eichmann in Jerusalem. She had all kinds of really big ideas about the importance of friendship, like friendship, especially when times are hard, and deliberative friendship as political work, as societal work that, should, that could be everyday practice in classrooms and schools. Um, and then I was reading Elisha Wiesel writing, um, my father was a builder of bridges across generations. He valued friendship as an ideal above all others. So I, I think there's quite a lineage for this thing you've experienced. It's very serious in a way, as much as it has was also clearly. And I think enjoyable. it's also worth pointing out that, I mean, over those two years, I was legitimately friends with Derek. It was not some sabotage project or I was going undercover or something. I mean, I was yeah. legitimately felt like I was, especially over time, counted amongst my closest friends, even when I frankly didn't know exactly where he stood. Mm -hmm. And you weren't asking. I was at first, as I mentioned, I was afraid that if I were to ask, that the defenses would go up, and that that would be the end of it. Later on, well, after two years, it's a little awkward. <laughs> We'd even play games because he knew that I knew, and I knew that he knew. It was so. So there would be awkward things. I screwed with him once at this conference that he mentioned. He, uh, he, I knew he was doing it, he was organizing it. So I asked him, what are you doing this weekend? He said, oh, so, so I'm going to see some family. I said, where? And I said, what are you doing? Yeah. So it was the little cat and mouse game. Uh -huh. my, my answer was, I'm going to a family reunion, which was not untrue. My entire family was there. What else was going on? Well, it was a, a seminar that I had founded the year before in response to being outed at New College. I, I had been very uncomfortable with the fact that so many people at this college really detested what I was representing, even though I thought it was super correct. So in response to that, the first year I had organized this seminar up in, in the mountains of Tennessee where people or a small group would come together and we would talk about the best ways to argue with anti-racists and to convince people that white nationalism is correct. And this was a year later after that initial one, and I was a lot less certain of what I believed, and I was going back to it for the Moral second support. annual. Uh, yeah. And it sounds like um, you, so what happened is that you never made, the Shabbat dinners never became conversations about white nationalism. But then gradually, over a period of time, in my understanding, Derek, individuals would 
bring something up with you and you and I don't know you also feel like you all you handled both of your you handled this so well and it feels like the campus handled it well so so you would end up taking a walk with somebody and and they would say I really I want to understand this and that started a different level of conversation yeah people I met at the Shabbat debtors in particular one person who did the brunt of all this labor of listening to me explain this ideology and what all is my evidence for it and why am I so convinced this is true? And then doing the labor to say, you are misusing crime statistics, here's how statistics works. And having that sort of conversation happen sort of naturally. It was from meeting at the dinners, but then being on a small campus and doing things like, let's go down to the bay to watch the sunset and just spend time as people. And eventually it becomes sort of awkward that we've never talked about that you believe in a reprehensible political ideology and you're advocating something terrible and you seem kind of nice. How do you reconcile <laughs> that? And you knew each other well enough that they could yeah. actually say it to you that way. Yeah, because it was lower stakes than being on an interview uh, for MSNBC or something. It was not that I had to make my points and try to get some converts. It was that I trusted this person. I liked this person. I respected this person. Right. And I wanted to explain why I think this is correct, because it's clearly correct. Um, if you don't want to accept that it's true, that's you know a decision you can make. But it's an uncomfortable truth. And that was the position I was coming from. And explaining that to a trusted friend in private where I'm not trying to score points didn't seem like it was a, a danger to my belief system because that was foundationally true. I entered it thinking that I was just talking to a friend and then a couple of years later came out the other end realizing that everything I believed about human nature was totally incorrect and what do I do about this now? Mm -hmm. So those, those two years also and like, I do feel like I'm belaboring all these points, but I feel like you know, this is kind of a step-by-step, -step, right? Yeah. Because what also happened that you're describing, that nobody was charting, was that you got to a point where when you trotted out your arguments that you were so skilled in and so, and so comfortable with, and it, but it did actually become a conversation. You were actually able to listen to a different way of seeing even those arguments that felt so, so clear to you? I, th I thought that it was very worthwhile and smart for me to do that because it would make me a better white nationalist. Right. I wanted to be someone who used evidence and believed something because it was demonstrable, not because it was some gut feeling. And if the way we were using generalized IQ statistics from around the world was illegitimate because the IQ test is culturally normed and you can't go around the world giving it to people and say, look, I've discovered the different intelligence of the races. If that's actually an illegitimate piece of evidence, I didn't want to use it. And so if you can convince me that that's not a good piece to use in my argument, of course I'll I want to be somebody who is willing to listen to bad evidence when I hear it. And each individual piece like that doesn't completely undermine your belief system. If you, right. or almost for anything else, if you lose a piece of evidence that you thought was essential, it doesn't mean that everything's not true. 
Uh, which is why at the time I thought I'm becoming a better white nationalist. I'm becoming better at arguing this because I now understand uh, how these things are being misused mm -hmm. and I don't want to be caught using illegitimate things. And it's only at the end where piece after piece after piece is removed and all I'm sort of left with is the fact that I think that I can be friends with Jewish students and with people of color, but my belief system says that they should all be removed from the United States. And I don't have any, any support for thinking that anyone is better off. All that is is a hateful ideology. And like, what do I do about my, my identity and my family and my future is all tied up in that that was true and I needed to active, uh, be active for it. And like, what decision do I make now was a terrible crisis point. Like, I just, I just wanted to disappear and never speak again, but it was a whole nother conversation where decided with the same person who decided I, I need to make a letter denouncing this. I can't just never be heard from. So, so it was that series of conversations that then led to your writing the letter, writing something public and it, my, my instinct was I'll just be quiet. And it was one last hard thing to realize that I had done too much damage in my activism to just be quiet now. You um, have recently been saying, you were, you were at Georgetown not that long ago, and um, you, you're saying pretty clearly now that, um, that civil dialogue and civil discourse alone is not the answer to, the, to those energies and those ideologies that you were part of. Um, and I want you to talk about that. I also, I also feel like there's, a, there's an interesting tension here, not a contradiction, but just a, like a human tension that you, you also say you, had ne you, you wrote this, I would never have begun my own conversations without first experiencing clear and passionate outrage to what I believed from those I interacted with. And yet, as we've been speaking, like that process of you being able to interact with them and take in that outrage was, was the seed that, that got you to that point. So, yeah, but I would like to hear about how you are thinking these days about this line between, you know, civility and outrage and activism. And yeah, I'm curious, you know, maybe you've been observing this as well, Matthew. I worry that my story gets told as a piece of evidence that the only way that you change people's minds is by having friendly conversations with them when it's clearly not true. It's, it's essential that you speak up loudly and condemn something that's wrong. That's what happened at college. It wasn't just these conversations. Uh, the context for those conversations was that an entire community of people that I had gotten to know for a semester before they knew who I was and who I respected um, clearly had come to a very intelligent conclusion that what I was advocating was, was morally wrong, was factually wrong, and I found that very unpleasant. I didn't want to listen to it, and it initially drove me to organize a seminar to try to make white nationalists be more confident in what they were believing. At New College? No, not at oh, New College, okay. separately. Uh, I never sparsely okay. attended seminar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that context was 
just as important as the private conversations. Okay. I don't think, I have no idea, but I don't think I would have talked my way out of, uh, out of this belief system without those private conversations with somebody that I trusted in the same way that I wouldn't have ever entered into those private conversations if I hadn't had a community who were very clear that what I was doing was threatening to their livelihood. I was not personally engaged in any violent movement. All I had done was go to hotel conferences and wear name badges and go to banquets and talk about race difference. So I said, how am I you know, threatening anyone or making anyone's life worse off? But that reaction that they had made me say, clearly it's happening, so why? And that's why I went into those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I, I really worry that someone will hear the fact that I had quiet conversations over two years and then ultimately abandoned my ideology as proof that being loud and saying I don't, I condemn that in my society is counterproductive when I yeah. don't think it is. They're no, both essential. but it's both, right? It's both. And I mean, do you think you, if without those quiet conversations, would you have been able to, you know, would, would the outrage alone have have brought you around? No. 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 The outrage alone would have made me a, a more firm adherent to being a white nationalist. Mm -hmm. but, it, but the quiet conversations couldn't have happened without the outrage. Without the outrage. I think, from my perspective, every message really has two components. There's the content of the message, and then there's also the way in which that message is delivered. And there's a difference between being aggressive and being strong. There's a difference between being vociferously opposed, in this case, to the white nationalist ideology and other hateful ideologies and taking steps to harm an individual who subscribes to those ideologies. I think that once you cross a line and say, I don't like the way that, per even an ideology which is as reprehensible as most of us, probably all of us in this room, believe white nationalism to be, once you cross the line to saying he's forfeited his rights as a human being, mm -hmm. he's forfeited his right to human dignity by virtue of having those beliefs. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the Nazis said that the Jews forfeited their rights to human dignity by virtue of being Jews. Where does it end? So to be strong, no question, it's important. Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between being strong and violating the humanity of another person. Yeah, I, I, and I, I feel like this is instructive, too, because we live in a culture right now where everybody's very comfortable with their outrage, right? Where it's just my outrage against your outrage on every side. So I feel like this question of how did, you can, and you're using that word, outrage, but like how did meaningful outrage, right? I mean, one thing that strikes me, Derek, is that you, I mean, something that is very different in this equation is that you had taken yourself out of that us, which you said was at the center of all the, the ideology about others. And you had, you were there in the middle of the other, right? Um, that's actually a picture that is unfamiliar, is becoming less familiar to us. 
I don't think I anticipated what impact not being around a bunch of white nationalists would have because I thought that I was independently minded and I think I am and being in an environment where people were not checking my ideological purity every five minutes turned out to be freeing enough where I could ponder, oh, what say, what if this were not the case? And thinking that way is only possible when I was not among the people who were telling me um, to you know, be stronger in the fight and keep giving them hell. Mm-hmm. E- even at home, um, when I, I didn't, I lived in South Florida, it was a fairly metropolitan, uh, urban, uh, diverse place. Uh, and even in that environment, uh, when I was away from you know, the house, I could get support for white nationalism. It was a period where I got sort of semi-famous at home and there was months that went by where I couldn't buy coffee at Dunkin' Donuts in the morning without some stranger in line walking up to pay my bill because I was famous for advocating for white people. And they just on some level thought that I was doing something good, that it was uh, opposing political correctness and standing up for white people when everybody else gets stood up for. And they were just normal people. And that kind of positive reaction was very encouraging. And at New College, there was, there was none of that. There was um, a sense that we need to think about this very carefully because this isn't my outrage versus your outrage. This is that you advocating this white supremacy stuff, which you say is just separation, but how could it be anything else, is objectively harmful to everybody else. And in that extreme situation where I'm advocating this ethno-state situation and they're saying that we already have enough problems with segregation in America, it wasn't just I'm angry and you're angry. Once we were quiet enough to talk about it, there, there were points to be made on, on not, not on both sides, but there were points to be made that white nationalism was incompatible with a free society. And it wasn't the first time I had heard that. It wasn't the first time that somebody had told me that racism is bad. It was just the first time that I'd been willing to listen to it. Right. So I'm curious about conversations that, or not just conversations, but how each of you works with this really transformative experience you've had, and I do, I do think you are bridge people, and uh, how that flows into your interactions, your conversations with other worlds, right? With, with the progressive world, or with the um, Orthodox Jewish world, or, or, with, or with, I mean, you, I believe you still have contact with your, with your family, is that right? And, mm, yeah. Um, Is there something, are there things you learn that you carry with you through the world that you find um, help you soften other kinds of experiences? I don't know. Or not. I don't don't think I know how to answer it. It's because I spend so much of my time trying to figure out how I fit into this world that... Yeah. You mean the world that you came from? No, the the world world outside of where I came from. Yeah. I spend... 
an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what it means to have grown up confident in a belief system that at one particular breaking moment in life I decided had not only been incorrect but destructive and what does that mean going forward and how do I approach being involved in anything else and how do I know that something I'm confident in now is is uh, something that I should be an active voice in and how do I know that the words that I choose and the places that I go are not going to be destructive like they once were. And like, these are the, where do I fit in the world is a question that I have to ask when I walk into a room. I mean, think of the fact that I'm at um, a global issues forum for the Holocaust Museum and the background and the life that led me to stand there is still very difficult for me to reconcile and say, how did I get here and what does it mean? I think that for me, I, from a very early age, my mom was very involved in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, it's one thing to say that people can change, but it's another to see somebody who had been engaged in enormously destructive behaviors not only cease doing those behaviors, but do a complete about face and actively help other people in the same situation that they had been, actively try to make the world a better place. And, you know, I I think that Derek's example and, and those convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter how deeply involved somebody is in a negative pattern of behavior or a negative ideology, they're never in too deep. There's always a chance for redemption. That's a big statement, yeah. I I said to you, Derek, before we walked out that I it feels kind of uncomfortable to me that you become a symbol, right? Like that I want to just talk to you as a human being. And, you know, because you do kind of, even, even as you have rejected this, you, you end up being drawn out as a representative of it. And I think that, as you know, and I feel like that's a passion behind how you're moving through the world now, um, this is an important dynamic, um, not just in American culture, but in global culture. I'd be curious about, um, given, given what you've learned, right, this, this odyssey you've been on, um, what, would be, what would make, in terms of how this is covered, the world you came from, or this possibility of redemption, how this is covered, how it's discussed, how it's analyzed. What, as you see that, what, what is, I don't know, I want to ask you for a critique, but what do you feel would make this more possible in terms of how it's handled by journalists, by academics, you know, in our, in public life, and, or even for those of us just in our home communities, in our, in our congregations, in our, in, in our, in our uh, community organizations? And you keep in mind that I come at my answer from the perspective of somebody who 
tried to be um, a good white nationalist and to be very active voice in that. And so my experience in it involves having a Rolodex of media people that I wanted to send an email to if I thought that there was something we were doing that should be story worthy. Right. And looking back on that, I still see the same thing happening uh, in the way a lot of white nationalists or other even extremist movements get covered is that there is a back and forth. And if some, some white nationalist activist wants to be in the news, there is a dynamic there where they can say, I'm having a press conference and major press show up. And, and they can say something inflammatory and it gets covered. Yeah, and then yeah. we all talk about it for yeah. a while. And looking at that dynamic happen and realizing how easy that is and how low cost it is makes me quite uncomfortable. And it's also not so easy to say, oh, don't cover them because it is, an aspect of America, and it's maybe larger than we like, even though this movement itself is small and doesn't hold influence, uh, a lot of the beliefs can resonate in large swaths of America in ways that we don't like, so we do need to be aware of it. But it's not so easy um, to, to say, how do you do that? How do you talk about problems that are centuries old and endemic to our society that are being actively poked at and prodded by a handful of people who want to try to use them to build their movement. And you can't say you're not going to look at it. You can't say you're not going to talk about it. And yet it's still true that every time, one, every time a media cavalcade shows up to a white nationalist event, it promotes their organization. Yeah. And I, could, I did that, they can still do that, and it's a dynamic that's gonna keep going on. But, I mean, your point is it's, it's worth deliberating about, right? It's worth naming as problematic. Mm -hmm. um, there's something you've said about, well, you, so you're studying history now, which is so interesting, and we're not gonna get to talk about that, but I, I uh, you know, one thing you said, you pointed out that that while a lot of these, this white nationalist, white supremacist energy and, and organization is, you know, on the fringe, definitely, in terms, I mean, not, as you say, not huge, but you said something you've come to see is that the real issue with it, and the thing that concerns you is that they're spinning this pretty extreme message and its extreme position, but it's also a position that kind of fits within American history that we are a country that only a few decades ago only emitted white people as immigrants and a few, few decades before that had decided to separate the races. And I think when you put it in that context, what that also is, you know, points at is that this is collective work we have to do and that we, on every side of our political spectrum and social spectrum, have this reckoning to do. I think that more people should be aware. And if maybe if nothing else comes out of hearing my story, I think more people should be aware that the talking points that a white nationalist uses when they're trying to win a campaign or gain members or have a rally are things that a lot of people could find reasonable in the right light. Uh, things 
things like um, we talk about violent crime in the south side of Chicago and say, oh, what's wrong with the south side of Chicago? And a white nationalist will pick up that conversation and say, who lives in the south side of Chicago? And there are very many reasonable people in America who say, oh, I see the kind of people who live in the south side of Chicago. It must be those kind of people are criminal. Mm-hmm. And I think and white nationalists will do this constantly. This is what they do. They pick up things that people find sort of reasonable that are like our conversation in America about how, what should we do about immigration? What should we do about policing? And they say, look at the racial aspects. Don't you think it's kind of racial? And the kind of things that their grandparents would have thought were quite reasonable. And there's, there's fertile ground there frequently. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the important thing the only important thing that could come from looking at this extremist movement is trying to see the sort of assumptions that a lot of us have. That'll, and if we have an assumption like maybe black people in Chicago is the reason there's violence, if we have an assumption like that, which a lot of people do, that a white nationalist could use, that's the sort of assumption we need to challenge and say that that's not true. That's why do I have that assumption? Why do I even think that way? Because the arguments that a white nationalist uses should find no fertile ground anywhere, and they still do. I think he hits upon an important point. Usually when someone is asked to picture racism in America, the image that comes to mind, probably a robed Klansman in front of a burning cross. There are very few people in America who would be willing to engage in that sort of activity. There are unfortunately a lot of people who are willing to engage in the activity that Derek described. And there's a very real sense in which that's the danger. That's the point which is very easy to suddenly say, the person has a good point. It's true. And it's true, by the way, of course, that there is violent, there are violence in cities, so people can see that. And they can see and make poor statistical inferences. And suddenly, they start to veer a little bit off the path of reason, as we would see it. But at first, it's just a little bit off the path, not so far. A little bit more, and a little bit more. Until eventually, a boarding cross doesn't seem so crazy. So we, we just have a few more minutes, and there's so much more we could talk about. I guess, you know, I have this feeling, and I want you to push back at me if you don't, that, that, that the way we're grappling culturally with this right now is actually making it harder for people to move away from that, that it's actually making it easy for that boundary to be crossed. And I guess just in the last few minutes, I... And Derek, I, I certainly would like to hear from you. You know, talk to all of us. And <laughs> here I am asking you to do this huge thing. But just, what are, what are, what are, what is a mentality? What, what is a way we could begin to think? A question we could begin to act? Small acts in the world that we can see and touch that would make it more likely, more possible for someone to undergo the kind of transformation you've undergone? No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's too big, but I, the only lesson that I think that I took from my experience that I feel is fairly universal is that it was grounded in empathy. Um, that the reason why I was not willing to listen to the argument that sound very straightforward, that we should work towards inclusion, not separation, was because I didn't empathize with people who weren't part of my in-group. And I thought I wasn't necessarily doing anything bad to them, but it was also the priority was the people or the people who were within my in-group. And what changed was feeling that people who are not in my in-group are being negatively impacted by my actions and that I should care about that and trying to reconcile that I should care about people who are negatively impacted by my actions um, and I'm still doing the actions became very difficult. And it, it really was empathizing with people who were not supposed to be part of my group mm -hmm. and increasing the number of people who were in my group. And that, that's the, the universal thing that I think came out of what I learned from coming coming through that because it, it can everybody has in groups yeah and that it's, has very practical implications for everybody i mean I, I will say something that impressed me that seems to have gone on with the two of you and at new college is that while a lot of things happened online many people at different stages took it offline right like and of course that was going to happen and that wasn't out you know you couldn't stop it um and in fact, it was also a forum when you had a statement to make, you would make it online. But, you know, y y there was this mix of letting that online, letting things unfold as they do in that space, but also constantly pulling it back to one-on-one -on -one conversation, to Shabbat dinner, um, saying, I mean, you also said, Derek, uh, you know, I'm not, if you want to talk to me about this, please reach out to me personally. And I, I mean, we, we, we wring our hands a lot about the digital space. Um, but I, I'm just saying, I think also New College and you modeled, you know, kind of living with that, but not letting it overwhelm. I don't know, does that? I think it's true. I think that the, one of, the, of course, the great advantages of the digital world is that you can reach so many people instantaneously, thousands, millions of people instantaneously, in a way you could never do face to face. One of the great advantages of not being online, though, of having a face-to-face -face connection, or the, even if it's online, a one-on-one, -on -one, a personal connection, is that it fosters the kind of empathy I'm, that Derek was describing. The other person is not just words on a screen. It's not just some, some empty message that you're responding to totally impersonally. Because it just looks like it's somebody's Facebook. Who knows? It's the person. When it's face-to-face, -face, it's a different ballgame. I think it's much harder, much harder to discount the person's humanity when he's staring you in the eyes. So let me ask you this question as we finish. Um, uh, another question that is far too large, so whatever, wherever you want to begin it. Um, Matthew, I'll start with you. Uh, just as, as you look around the world right now and think about the context of this conversation we're having, and how this friendship has shaped you and transformed you. Um, what uh, right now makes you despair? 
And where are you finding hope? Sure. So I don't think I would use the word despair because I think the word despair makes it seem as though there is no hope. But there is certainly a tendency, I think, to increasingly, and maybe this is because of the digitalization, I'm not sure, but an increasing trend to only associating with people who agree with you, who have the same worldview, who have the same opinions as you. And that's psychologically pleasing and it's maybe fun, but the terrible cost of that is that you run a very real risk of losing empathy for people who disagree with you. And that's why I see people, people who are my friends, who I love dearly, think nothing to say, I hate so-and-so, I, I hate Republicans or I hate Democrats. Like, do they know what they're saying? As far as hope, I think that the underlying spark of goodness that's within each and every one of us and within everybody on the world is ultimately going to win out. That this empathy that people can generate and feel, you can't stop it in the long run. And as increasingly as people like Derek speak up publicly, I, I think that people will increasingly feel connected. And it's true even today that you see a connection to largely digitally, but I am much more aware of what goes on in China than my grandfather was or my great-grandfather was. I can see pictures in real time of things happening there. That's a real direct connection. I can feel their pain. Derek, what uh, makes you despair and what gives you hope? I probably would agree with Matthew that I look away from the word despair. And again, though, it's, I probably do actually despair at times because my background informs my answer, is I spent a lot of time trying to be a good activist for a bad cause. And I spent a lot of time seeing the ways that my predecessors had been successful at that, you know, whether it's winning campaigns or building organizations in large numbers and so cultivated arguments that found fertile ground and that led us to think that we were not only right but that with time everybody would see that we were right and agree and then I left and for a while I thought that we had clearly been completely wrong um, because the world is moving towards becoming more inclusive and then I got a little bit more despair, thinking maybe, maybe they were right, because there are places where a white nationalist argument finds ground among good, smart people. And now I think I'm back to being confident. People do want inclusion. They do want to, they do want to make a fair society. I think just about everybody does, wants there to be, um, wants there to be a society where we are not um, limited, where we're not oppressed because of, because of our group. And it's just very hard to do that. And it starts with our own beliefs and our own assumptions. And so I guess I find despair in the fact that a lot of us have 
terrible assumptions and terrible beliefs, but that it's encouraging that by changing our assumptions and challenging our beliefs, we can create enormous change and enormous correction in the way things are and the way things work, if we want to do that, and if we want to spend the painful time doing that. And that's encouraging. Thank you so much, Derek and Matthew, for modeling that this deliberative friendship and this willingness and this courage to be, to be bridge people. Um, you, you have so much to teach us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you.